0: David, today, as I looked in my mirror, as critically and cruelly as I could, I found myself entertaining a thought which for years now I have rigorously excluded, the thought of seeing you again. Only I could not for the life of me see the terms and conditions of such a meeting. My vision of it was covered by a black cloud of doubt. Now that Faltus is dead and buried, the whole of that part of my life has been snapped off short. I have no other except the one I shared with you, a paper life. Crudely, we have been like people drifting steadily apart in age as each year passed. Subconsciously, I must have been waiting for Falter's death, though I never wished it, for how else should this hope, this delusion, suddenly rise up in me now? It suddenly occurred to me last night that we might still have... Six months or a year left to spend together "'before the link snaps for good in the old sense. "'Is this rubbish? "'Yes. "'Would I, in fact, only encumber you, embarrass you "'by arriving in Paris as I plan to do in two months' time? "'For goodness' sake, write back at once "'and dissuade me from my false hopes, from such folly, "'for I recognize deep within myself that it is a folly.' to enjoy you for a few months before I return here to take up this life. How hard it is to abandon that hope, scotch it, please, at once, so that when I do come, I will be at peace, simply regarding you as I have all these years, as something more than my closest friend. She knew it was unfair to put him in such a position, but she could not help herself, Was it fortunate, then, that fate prevented him from having to make such an elaborate decision? For her letter arrived on his desk in the same post as Nassim's long telegram announcing the onset of her illness. And while he was still hesitating between a choice of answers, there came her postcard written in a new, sprawling hand which absolved him finally by the words, "'Do not write again until I can read you. "'I am bandaged from head to foot. "'Something very bad, very definitive has happened.'" During the whole of that hot summer, the confluent smallpox, invented perhaps as the cruelest remedy for human vanity, dragged on, melting down what remained of her once-celebrated beauty. It was useless to pretend even to herself that her whole life would not be altered by it. But how? Mount Olive waited in an agony of indecision until their correspondence could be renewed, writing now to Nassim, now to Naruz. A void had suddenly opened at his feet. Then he hears from her. It is an odd experience to look upon one's features full of potholes and landslides like a familiar landscape blown up. I fear that I must get used to the new sensation of being a hag, but by my own force. Of course, all this may strengthen the other sides of my character, as acids can. I've lost the metaphor. What sophistry it is, for there is no way out. And how bitterly ashamed I am of the proposals contained in my last long letter. This is not the face to parade true Europe, nor would one dare to shame you by letting it claim your acquaintance at close range. Today, I ordered a dozen black veils such as the poor people of my religion still wear. But it seemed so painful an act that I ordered my jeweler to come and measure me afresh for some new bracelets and rings. I have become so thin of late, a reward for bravery, too, as children are bribed with a suite for facing a nasty medicine, Poor little Hakim. He wept bitterly as he showed me his wares. I felt his tears on my fingers. Yet somehow I was able to laugh. My voice, too, has changed. I have been so sick of lying in darkened rooms. The veils will free me. Yes, and of course I have been debating suicide. Who would not at such times? No, but if I live on it won't be to pity myself. Or perhaps women's vanity is not, as we think, a mortal matter, a killing business. I must be confident and strong. Please don't turn solemn and pity me. When you write, let your letters be gay, as always, will you? But thereafter came a silence before their correspondence was fully resumed, and her letters now had a new quality of bitter resignation. She had retired, she wrote, to the land once more where she lived alone with Nerus, His gentle savagery makes him an ideal companion. Besides, at times I am troubled in mind now, not quite compos mentis, and then I retire for days at a time to the little summer house, remember, at the end of the garden? There I read and write with only my snake. The genius of the house these days is a great dusty cobra, tame as a cat. It is company enough. Besides, I have other cares now, Other plans, desert without and desert within. Vales a fine and private place, but none, I think, do their embrace. If I should write you nonsense during the times when the Afrit has bewitched my mind, as the servants say, don't answer. These attacks only last a day or two at most. And so the new epoch began. For years she sat, an eccentric and veiled recluse in Karma writing those long, marvellous letters, her mind still ranging freely about the lost worlds of Europe in which he still found himself a traveller. But there were fewer imperatives of the old eager kind. She seldom looked outward now toward new experiences, but mostly backward into the past as one whose memory of small things needed to be refreshed, Could one hear the cicadas on the Tour Magne? Was the Seine corn green at Bougival? At the Paléo of Siena were the costumes of silk, the cherry trees of Navarra? She wanted to verify the past, to look back over her shoulder, and patiently Mount Olive undertook these reassurances on every journey. Rembrandt's little monkey, had she seen or only imagined it in his canvases? No, it existed, he told her sadly. Very occasionally, a request touching the new came up. My interest has been aroused by some singular poems in Valius, September, signed Ludwig Piercewarden. Something new and harsh here. As you are going to London next week, please inquire about him for me. Is he German? Is he the novelist who wrote those two strange novels about Africa? The name is the same. It was this request which led directly to Mount Olive's first meeting with a poet who was later to play a part of some importance in his life. Despite the almost French devotion he felt copied from Layla for artists, he found Pursewarden's name an awkward, almost comical one to write upon the postcard which he addressed to him care of his publishers. For a month he heard nothing, but as he was in London on a 3 months course of instruction, he could afford to be patient. When his answer came, it was, surprisingly enough, written upon the familiar foreign office notepaper. His post, it appeared, was that of a junior in the cultural department. He telephoned him at once and was agreeably surprised by the pleasant, collected voice. He had half expected someone aggressively underbred, and was relieved to hear a civilized note of self-collected humor in Warden's voice." They agreed to meet for a drink at the compasses near Westminster Bridge that evening, and Mount Olive looked forward to the meeting as much for Layla's sake as his own, for he intended to write her an account of it, carefully describing her artist for her. It was snowing with light persistence, the snow melting as it touched the pavements but lingering longer on coat-collars and hats. A snowflake on the eyelash suddenly bursts the world asunder into the gleaming component colours of the prism— "'Mount Olive bent his head and came around the corner just in time "'to see a youthful-looking couple turn into the bar of the compasses. "'The girl, who turned to address a remark to her companion over her shoulder as the door turned, "'wore a brilliant tartan shawl with great white brooch. "'The warm lamplight splashed upon her broad, pale face with its helmet of dark, curling hair.' She was strikingly beautiful, with a beauty whose somehow shocking placidity took Mount Olive a full second to analyze. Then he saw that she was blind, her face slightly upcast to her companions in the manner of those whose expressions never fully attain their target, the eyes of another. She stayed thus for a full second before her companion said something laughingly and pressed her onward into the bar. Mount Olive entered on their heels and found himself at once grasping the warm, steady hand of Perthwarden. The blind girl, it seemed, was his sister. A few moments of awkwardness ensued while they disposed themselves by the blazing coke fire in the corner and ordered drinks. Perthwarden, though in no way a striking person, seemed agreeably normal. He was of medium height and somewhat pale in colouring with a trimmed moustache which made a barely noticeable circumflex above a well-cut mouth. He was, however, so completely unlike his sister in colouring that mont concluded that the magnificent dark hair of the sightless girl must perhaps be dyed, though it seemed natural enough, and her slender eyebrows were also dark. Only the eyes might have given one a clue to the secret of this Mediterranean pigmentation— and they, of course, were spectacularly missing. It was the head of a Medusa. Its blindness was that of a Greek statue, a blindness perhaps brought about by intense concentration through centuries upon sunlight and blue water. Her expression, however, was not magistral, but tender and appealing. Long, silken fingers, "'curled and softened at the butts "'like the fingers of a concert pianist, "'moved softly upon the oaken table between them, "'as if touching, confirming, certifying, "'hesitating to ascribe qualities to his voice. "'At times, her own lips moved softly "'as if she were privately repeating "'the words they spoke to herself "'in order to recapture their resonance and meaning. "'Then she was like someone following music "'with a private score.' "'Liza, my darling,' said the poet. "'Brandy and soda,' she replied with her placid blankness, "'in a voice at once clear and melodious, "'a voice which might have given some such overtone to the words "'honey and nectar.' "'They seated themselves somewhat awkwardly "'while the drinks were dispensed. "'Brother and sister sat side by side, "'which gave them a somewhat defensive air. "'The blind girl put one hand in her brother's pocket. "'So began in rather a halting fashion, the conversation which lasted them far into the evening and which he afterward transcribed so accurately to Layla, thanks to his formidable memory. He writes, "'He was somewhat shy at first "'and took refuge in a pleasant diffidence. "'I found to my surprise that he was earmarked "'for a Cairo posting next year "'and told him a little about my friends there, "'offering to give him a few letters of introduction, "'notably to Nessim. He may have been a little intimidated by my rank, but this soon wore off. He hasn't much of a head for drinks, and after the second began to talk in a most amusing and cutting fashion. A rather different person now emerged, odd and equivocal as one might expect an artist to be, but with pronounced views on a number of subjects, some of them not at all to my taste but they had an oddly personal ring. One felt they were deduced from experience and not worked out simply to a pate. He is, for example, rather an old-fashioned reactionary in his outlook, and is consequently rather vu by his brother craftsmen who suspect him of fascist sympathies. The prevailing distemper of left-wing thought, indeed all radicalism, is repugnant to him. But his views were expressed humorously and without heat, I could not, for example, rouse him on the Spanish issue to quote him all those little beige people trooping off to die for the left book club. Mount Olive had indeed been rather shocked by opinions as clear-cut as they were trenchant, for he at the time shared the prevailing egalitarian sympathies of the day, albeit in the anodyne liberalized form then current in the office. Pursewarden's royal contempts made him rather a formidable person. I confess, Mount Olive wrote, that I did not feel I had exactly placed him in any one category, but he expressed views rather than attitudes, and I must say, he said a number of striking things which I memorized for you, such as, the artist's work constitutes the only satisfactory relationship he can have with his fellow men, since he seeks his real friends amongst the dead and the unborn. That is why he cannot dabble in politics. It isn't his job. He must concentrate on values rather than policies. Today it all looks to me like a silly shadow play, for ruling is an art, not a science, just as a society is an organism, not a system. Its smallest unit is the family, and really, royalism is the right structure for it, for a royal family is a mirror image of the human, a legitimate idolatry. I mean, for us, the British, with our essentially quixotic temperament and mental sloth. I don't know about the others." As for capitalism, its errors and injustices are all remediable by fair taxation. We should be hunting not for an imaginary equality among men, but simply for a decent equity. But then kings should be manufacturing a philosophy of sorts, as they did in China. An absolute monarchy is hopeless for us today because the philosophy of kingship is at a low ebb. The same goes for dictatorship. As for communism, I can see that it is hopeless, too. The analysis of man in terms of economic behaviorism takes all the fun out of living, and to divest him of a personal psyche is madness. And so on and so on, Mount Olive writes. He has visited Russia for a month with a cultural delegation and did not like what he felt there. Other boutade, like sad Jews on whose faces one could see all the melancholia of a secret arithmetic. I asked an old man in Kiev if Russia was a happy place. He drew his breath sharply, and after looking around him furtively, said, We say that once Lucifer had good intentions, a change of heart. He decided to perform a good act for a change, just one. So, hell was born on earth, and they named it Soviet Russia. In all this, Mount Olive continues, his sister played no part, but sat in eloquent silence with her fingers softly touching the table, curling like little tendrils of vine, smiling at his aphorisms as if at private wickednesses. Only once, when he had gone out for a second, she turned to me and said, He shouldn't concern himself with these matters, really. His one job is to learn how to submit to despair. I was very much struck by this oracular phrase, which fell so naturally from her lips, did not know what to reply. When he returned, he resumed his place in the conversation at one and the same time as if he had been thinking it over by himself. He said, "'No, they are a biological necessity, kings. Perhaps they mirror the very constitution of the psyche.' "'We have compromised so admirably with a question of their divinity "'that I should hate to see them replaced by a dictator "'or a workers' council in a firing squad.' I had to protest, says Mount Olive, at this preposterous view, but he was quite serious. He continued, I assure you that this is the way the left wing tends. Its object is civil war, though it does not realize it, thanks to the cunning with which the sapless Puritans like Shaw and company have presented their case. Marxism is the revenge of the Irish and the Jews. I had to laugh at this, says Mount Olive, and so to do him justice had he. He continued, But at least it will explain why I am malvu, and why I am always glad to get out of England to countries where I feel no moral responsibility and no desire to work out such depressing formulations. After all, what the hell, I am a writer. By this time he had had several drinks and was quite at his ease. He exclaimed, Let us leave this barren field. Oh, how much I want to get away to the cities which were created by their women, a Paris or Rome built in response to female lusts. I never see old Nelson's soot-covered form in Trafalgar Square without thinking. Poor Emma had to go all the way to Naples to assert the right to be pretty... "'feather-witted, and Dern's splendour in bed. "'What am I, purse-warden, doing here "'among people who live in a frenzy of propriety? "'Let me wander where people have come to terms "'with their own human obscenity, "'safe in a poet's cloak of invisibility. "'I want to learn to respect nothing "'while despising nothing. "'Crooked is the path of the initiate. ha, oh, ha, my dear, you are tipsy,' "'cried Liza with delight. "'Tipsy and sad, sad and tipsy.' But joyful, joyful. Mount Olive writes, "'I must say this new and amusing vein in his character "'seemed to bring me much nearer to the man himself.' First warden continued Why the stylized emotion why the fear and trembling all those gloomy lavatories with mackintoshed police women waiting to see if one pees straight or not think of all the passionate adjustment of dress that goes on in the kingdom the keeping off the grass is it any wonder that i absent-mindedly take the entrance marked aliens only whenever i return ha ha you are tipsy cried liza again no i am happy He said it seriously, and happiness can't be induced. You must wait and ambush it like a quail, or a girl with tired wings. Between art and contrivance there is a gulf fixed. On he went in this new and headlong strain, and I must confess that I was much taken by the effortless play of a mind which was no longer conscious of itself— Of course, here and there I stumbled against a coarseness of expression which was boorish and looked anxiously at his sister, but she only smiled, her blind smile, indulgent and uncritical. It was late when we walked back together toward Trafalgar Square in the falling snow. There were few people about, and the snowflakes deadened our footsteps. In the square itself, your poet stopped to apostrophize Nelson Stylites in true calf-killing fashion." I have forgotten exactly what he said, but it was sufficiently funny to make me laugh very heartily. And then he suddenly changed his mood and, turning to his sister, said, "'Do you know what has been upsetting me all day, Liza? "'Today is Blake's birthday. Think of it, the birthday of Codger Blake. "'I felt I ought to see some signs of it on the national countenance. "'I looked about me eagerly all day, but there was nothing.' Darling Liza, let us celebrate the old bastard's birthday, shall we? You and I and David Mount Olive here, as if we were French or Italian, as if it meant something. The snow was falling fast, the last sodden leaves lying in mounds, the pigeons uttering their guttural, clotted noises. Shall we, Liza? A spot of bright pink had appeared in each of her cheeks. Her lips were parted, snowflakes like dissolving jewels in her dark hair. How, she said, just how? "'We will dance for Blake,' said Pursewarden, with a comical look of seriousness on his face, and taking her in his arms, he started to waltz, humming the Blue Danube. Over his shoulder, through the falling snowflakes, he said, "'This is for Will and Kate Blake.' I don't know why I felt astonished and rather touched. They moved in perfect measure, gradually increasing in speed, until they were skimming across the square under the bronze lions, hardly heavier than the whiffs of spray from the fountains.' "'like pebbles skimming across a smooth lake "'or stones across an ice-bound pond. "'It was a strange spectacle. "'I forgot my cold hands "'and the snow melting on my collar as I watched them. "'So they went, completing a long, gradual ellipse "'across the open space, scattering the leaves and the pigeons, "'their breath steaming on the night air.' and then, gently, effortlessly, spinning out the ark to bring them back to me, to where I stood now with a highly doubtful-looking policeman at my side. It was rather amusing. "'What's going on here?' said the bobby, staring at them with a distrustful admiration. Their waltzing was so perfect that I think even he was stirred by it. On they went and on magnificently in accord, the dark girl's hair flying behind her, her sightless face turned up toward the old admiral on his sooty perch.' "'They are celebrating Blake's birthday,' I explained, in rather a shamefaced fashion. "'And the officer looked a shade more relieved as he followed them with an admiring eye. "'He coughed and said, "'Well, he can't be too drunk to dance like that, can he? "'The things people get up to on their birthdays.' "'At long last they were back, laughing and panting and kissing one another. "'Pursewarden's good humour seemed to be quite restored now, "'and he bade me the warmest of good nights as I put them both in a taxi and sent them on their way.' "'There, my dear Leila, I don't know what you will make of all this. "'I learned nothing of his private circumstances or background, "'but I shall be able to look him up, "'and you will be able to meet him when he comes to Egypt. "'I am sending you a small printed collection of his newest verses, "'which he gave me. "'They have not appeared anywhere as yet.' "'In the warm central heating of the club bedroom "'he turned the pages of the little book "'more with a sense of duty than one of pleasure,' It was not only modern poetry which bored him, but all poetry. He could never get the wavelength, so to speak, however hard he tried. He was forced to reduce the words to paraphrase in his own mind, so that they stopped their dance. This inadequacy in himself, Layla had taught him to regard it as such, irritated him. Yet, as he turned the pages of the little book, he was suddenly interested by a poem which impinged upon his memory, filling him with a sudden chill of misgiving. It was inscribed to the poet's sister, and was unmistakably a love poem, to a blind girl whose hair is painted black. At once he saw the white, serene face of Liza Pearcewarden rising from the text. Greek statues with their bullet holes for eyes, blinded as eras by surprise, the secrets of the foundling heart disguise, lover and loved. It had a kind of savage, deliberate awkwardness of surface, but it was a sort of poem a modern Catullus might have written. It made Mount Olive extremely thoughtful. Swallowing, he read it again. It had the simple beauty of shamelessness. He stared gravely at the wall for a long time before slipping the book into an envelope and addressing it to Layla. There were no further meetings during that visit, though once or twice Mount Olive tried to telephone to Piercewarden at his office, but each time he was either on leave or on some obscure mission in the north of England. Nevertheless, he traced the sister and took her out to dinner on several occasions, finding her a delightful and somehow moving companion. Layla wrote in due course to thank him for his information, adding characteristically, The poems were splendid, but of course I would not wish to meet an artist I admired. The work has no connection with the man, I think. But I am glad he is coming to Egypt. Perhaps Nassim can help him. Perhaps he can help Nassim. We shall see. Mount Olive did not know what the penultimate phrase meant. The following summer, however, his leave coincided with a visit to Paris by Nassim, and the two friends met to enjoy the galleries and plan a painting holiday in Brittany. They had both recently started to try their hands at painting and were full of the fervour of amateurs at a new medium. It was here, in Paris, that they ran into Perswarden, who was enjoying a month's leave before taking up his post in Cairo. It was a happy accident, for he would be able to return with Nassim, and Mount Olive was delighted at the chance of making his path smooth for him by this lucky introduction. Perswarden himself was quite transfigured and in the happiest of moods, and Nassim seemed to like him immensely. When the time came to say goodbye, Mount Olive had the genuine conviction that a friendship had been established and cemented over all this good food and blithe living. He saw them off at the station, and that very evening reported to Layla on the notepaper of his favorite café. He writes, It was a real regret to put them on the train and to think that next week I shall be back in Russia. My heart sinks at the thought. But I have grown to like P very much, to understand him better. I am inclined to put down his robust, scolding manners, not to boorishness as I did, but to a profoundly hidden shyness, almost a feeling of guilt. His conversation this time was quite captivating. You must ask Nassim. I believe he liked him even more than I did. And so... What? An empty space... A long, frozen journey. Ah, my dear Leila, how much I miss you. What you stand for. When will we meet again, I wonder. If I have enough money on my next leave, I may fly down to visit you. He was unaware that quite soon he would once more find his way back to Egypt, the beloved country to which distance and exile lent a haunting brilliance as of tapestry. Could anything as rich as memory be a cheat? He never asked himself the question. This has been Beatrice Manley, reading from Mount Olive.